Welcome to A Tribe Called Yes, the podcast that brings you closer to the world's most notorious risk takers, trailblazers, and enemies of the status quo. Now, here's your host, Darren K. Roberts. Today, let's welcome Evan Baer, founder of Able, the online lender that aims to serve the Fortune 5 million. The small businesses that he believes represent the backbone of the American economy. His book, Get Backed, Craft Your Story, Build a Perfect Pitch Deck, and Launch the Venture of Your Dreams made the number one spot in Amazon's business new releases. His vision of making life better by making it social has taken him to Facebook where he worked with Sheryl Sandberg. Welcome to the tribe, Evan Baer. So the first quarter of your life, looking back... What was it like growing up to be Evan? What, what were the projections and the scouting report on you as a youngster? Wow, taking me way back here. Born and raised in what we call the Redneck Riviera, Pensacola, Florida, home of the Throwed Mullet, which at the Florabama Bar bordering Florida and Alabama is not actually the hairstyle, though that does appear. It's actually a throwed frozen fish, the mullet. Huh. So it's really just a paragon of high culture, as you can imagine. <laughs> But looking back on it, I mean, a pretty safe town, kind of sleepy, bucolic life growing up. As I think about later on my path into entrepreneurship, I grew up in a place where I did not know many business people. Hmm. The only, quote, businessman I knew was the owner of the local car dealership. And that wasn't a bad thing, but it just wasn't that exciting for me. And so I think as a child, I was passionate. I got really involved in speech and debate and sports and was interested in doing something that mattered. And at that time, I think for me, the only thing that really seemed to quote matter was people that did stuff around law and politics and public policy. Hmm. And so for me, I wanted to do something that mattered. And the only textbook examples I had were people that went the route of law and politics. So it took me a little while to start thinking about the entrepreneurship route. Hmm. And I saw that in Get Back to Your, in the acknowledgement section, you thanked your debate coach. Why do you think debate was so pivotal? I have this same theory. I did four years of cross-sex debate in high school. Nice. And my debate coach just retired from 30 plus years. But why was debate so powerful for you? Well, when you come in last place on every sports team, uh, time <laughs> after time, and then you do okay in debate... For people that know about debate, they know how weird it is. And if you don't know about debate, you probably think it's weird, and you're right, too. As you know, it gets so competitive. You go to 10-week-long summer camps and do speed drills with pencils in your mouth. I mean, it's just – it's really pretty crazy. But I guess for me, it was an introduction to the idea that words have great power. And through the use of research and writing and oral – presentation and persuasion, you can actually change what people believe mm. and change people's opinions on things. So I liked learning that as a craft. We got to study and listen to wonderful speeches throughout history and then get to practice all the time. A fun piece of it too, I think it actually gave me a little bit of a healthy arm's length distance from getting wed to certain ideas. Mm. And in an interesting way, so I went on and debated in college and my debate partner 
we basically disagreed on everything, like on the merits on particular policy issues or whatever. We just did not share politics at all. But that was so fun because, as you know, you're kind of assigned a side to the debate and your job is to marshal the best arguments possible, which I think in an interesting way, I mean, I have strong beliefs about stuff, but in a neat way, it taught me that ideas always deserve their best defense. And so I try to afford other people that I disagree with that same kind of respect to say, hey, look, I might disagree with you, but let's have a debate and have some great clash around how we come to these ideas with two perspectives. And we may disagree, but let's learn about each other's side. Hmm. Reminds me of Mr. Barton again, debate coach would always say, no idea is safe here. Mm. So yeah, one day you're arguing one side, you're on the pro side, the next day you're on the con. Yeah. Was later, I got to see a wonderful relationship between Robert George and Cornell West at mm. Princeton University, where I went for college. And those two men, I mean, gosh, they really share basically no opinions. <laughs> Diametrically <laughs> opposed, you know. Actually, they both wear three-piece suits, so that might be something they have in common. Still the but... classic bl- for Cornell, the black oh, the yeah. white and the All black black, uh... <laughs> black vest, and, and Robbie, I guess, is more in like a wool three-piece suit. But, uh, you know, they both have a great style. But, man, they disagree on everything, but they, they teach this wonderful freshman seminar and a few other courses where it's two people that really disagree on a lot of issues and core beliefs, but gosh, what they have is this fundamental mutual respect for each other and that they know that each other and they believe that each other is approaching the other person in good faith Hmm. out of a spirit of curiosity and having really thought about the issues a lot. And that's something that I think is a little bit at risk right now in our culture, both in political discourse and campus dialogue. But there's some sense that I saw modeled out in a neat way in debate and then and later with some faculty. Let the best ideas win, but let them all be heard. Hmm. So take us into the second quarter. You're in high school. And what led you to Princeton? Oh, man. Well, Honestly, the only time I had known about Princeton was from Carlton Banks on the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. <laughs> uh, for listeners who are too young for that, check it out on Wikipedia. But Carlton Banks was you know, the preppy cousin of Will Smith. And anyway, he goes to Princeton and he wears V-neck sweaters. And it's actually what people do wear at Princeton. So let's be honest, I didn't know about it all. Growing up in a public school in Florida, if you did really well on the ACTs, you got to go to University of Florida. If you did okay, you went to Florida State. And there wasn't much of a culture of people had not really gone away to school. My father had gone to Tulane just down the road in New Orleans. And so it just really wasn't on people's radar. So through debate, I got to travel a lot and go to different universities where they hosted tournaments. And then I took the SATs and did really well. It was sort of one of these fluke deals that I then got some letters from some colleges that said, we'd love you to come visit. We think you should apply. I went up to these schools and It's really led me to think differently about how important it is to expose young people, really expose everyone to what the options are. And so for me, I just never knew that it was an option to go to a school like that or really to go to a school outside of Florida. Similarly, I didn't know that there were options to be a business person. Um, I knew only about like a really limited set of options. So as I occasionally get to spend time with younger people today. And I have two younger people in my house, my kids that are six and three, love to just think about, let it be known what the options are. So got this letter from Princeton, went up, visited, and it was a amazing place. I mean, the the landscaping and the buildings and the classes and the residential model, it was a pretty 
amazing visit and just said, gosh, this is a opportunity of a lifetime. So even the decision to go and visit. So I, I run into people who will say, you know, I wish I'd applied to more schools. I wish I'd taken more visits. Making the decision to actually leave your hometown and mm-hmm. to go and see these places. What gave you the gumption to do that? The refrain that was written on my birthday card every year for my parents was, where did he come from? Question mark. And it was sort of this refrain in my family that I have one brother, I had some cousins. I was always kind of different. And so the joke was that, you know, I had been dropped off by some stork that made a flawed delivery. And so I don't really know where that stuff came from. My parents, my brother had gone to one high school. I went to the different high school. You know, my brother played tennis. I did debate. He was really into wakeboarding. I got into selling Excel communications, long distance phone service door to door. I don't know. It's more on that later. But um, I just kind of, I don't really know where it came from. I was just interested in these things. And I think I had some hunch that like there was more out there that just you peek around the corner and there was something different. And so I'd look at people five years out from my high school and they had maybe gone away to college, but come back to my hometown and they weren't doing the kind of things that got me particularly excited. Hmm. So it wasn't really that I had, gosh, I had this vision. I'm definitely going to go out and nail it. It was almost sort of a hope for, I think there's something else out there. Let me go explore that. So drive, where do you fall in the nature versus nurture camp? There's this inexplicable force and you're out there saying, hey, let me look around. And a lot of people would have said, hey, I'm comfortable here. I'm just going to go to Florida, Florida State. Won't take any visits. Where do you fall? Do you think it's a combination? Is it nature or nurture when it comes to drive? Well, we have a nice little case study of one sibling, five-year elder brother of mine, similar nurture of the ecosystem of where we grew up, arguably different nature from a genetic perspective, neurological perspective. And we're really different. I mean, he had a lot of drive. He played tennis competitively and then in college. And so he wasn't hanging out on the couch, but our drive manifested in really different ways. One kind of weird experience I kept having was, for example, deciding to go to this magnet program at a public high school. I just kind of had this desire. I said, I want to go check this out and just see what it's like. And uh, I applied. I didn't think I was going to get in. And I got in and then I'm showing up for my first day and I was convinced that I was going to fail. And I'd actually built little roadmaps of, okay, if I fail this year, I do this. If I fail this year, like how would I still get into this other school? And so I had this weird sadomasochist (laughs) kind of like, all right, I'm going to go there, but like, I'm probably not going to do very well. And I got there and first year I did well. And I think I was 90th percentile or something. I was like, well, shoot, if I can be at 90th percentile, I bet I could be at like 95th percentile. And so I kind of, in a weird way, kept overcoming, sort of slightly underselling myself. And with each of those times when you think you're going to come in last and you come in first, for me, it was these little confidence boosters. But that pattern keeps repeating itself for me. I mean, I show up at Princeton and I'm like, oh, gosh, I've got my fail out plan. You know, everyone I meet smarter than I am. Years later, showed up at Harvard Business School. I'm certainly the dumbest person in the class. And then you graduate with honors. And what does that happen? I don't know. I probably have some of those things borne out in my entrepreneurial career as well, but at least enough confidence to to keep going and to raising money and trying to build companies. Hmm. So to that point on these fail out plans, has that helped you as an entrepreneur in a way sort of troubleshoot before the trouble comes and plan ahead 
as you're building businesses? I think it definitely does. Two ways come to mind. The first is, I forgot where I read this, but there was some exercise where one way to overcome fear is to actually play out in as vivid detail as possible what would happen if you did fail. And so actually play it out. So I am going to pitch in a business plan competition tomorrow and there's 10 people presenting and I have this fear that I'll come in 10th. Okay, well, so let's play that out. So I get up there, I give a pitch and I walk off the stage and I feel like it didn't go that well. Okay, so that feels kind of bad. Then they're announcing the winners. They announce the third place. I don't get it. The second place, I don't get it. The first place, I don't get it. Okay, well, I'm sitting in my chair a little bit sad and then I see the people that did win and I shake their hands and I leave and I'm go home and think about how I could have done better, right? So you play it out in your mind in a way that it can let some of the oxygen out of the room of how fear can cripple you. That's one. Secondly, on a practical front, I do think this plays out with my co-founder of this company as we build financial models and think about decision trees. And so in a venture-backed early stage startup, you are always thinking about your cash and how much money you're burning and how soon you can become profitable. And so you are either implicitly or explicitly assigning probabilities to the different outcomes. Do we turn the corner and not run out of money or do we just crush it right out of the gates or do we go all the way down and go to zero? And so you're you're implicitly backing out, okay, how likely is each of those things to happen? And so Kind of the way we work through it is I'm maybe slightly more, I mean, I'm still a crazy optimist, but relative to him, I'm probably a little bit more pessimistic and he's a little bit more optimistic. And so we try to just calmly map out, okay, what are all the possibilities on the board? And then even if you think that this one possibility of going down to zero has a 1% chance, what would we do? Hmm. And would that mean things like, okay, let's not personally guarantee a $10 million loan or we've got to buy a bunch of cars, so don't personally sign for those cars or you know whatever the issue is. In the 1% chance, let's at least kind of map it out. But when we map it out, it takes it out of the heated, contentious, why are you so negative? Why are you so delusional? And just lays it out. It's like, okay, we might disagree about what's likely to happen, but we both agree that we should have a plan for each of the scenarios. So that process sort of sucks the pessimism out of the air because the point is to really identify all the ways that things could go wrong, assign values to the success and the failure of different options. And so now it's not a matter of coming back six months later and you're saying, well, hey, why are you thinking this way? You know, let's let's keep chugging along. Right, because six months ago you said, all right, in this 1% scenario that we missed six months of projections in a row. You know, when we talked about that six months ago, we were like, there's no chance that's going to happen. But if it does happen, then we would do X. You've at least gone there in terms of what is that X thing that you would do? Shut the company down, lay people off. One of you would leave, you know, whatever the issue is. That's one of the tools. A thesis advisor of mine in undergrad, a faculty member that I really love, Danny Kahneman, won the Nobel around behavioral economics and thinking fast, thinking slow. One of his more popular and wonderful books. And it gets to this whole range of cognitive bias. And there's a bunch of these, a super interesting reading. One of them, though, I think is interesting is called the recency bias. And a question like, how many Chick-fil-A's are in Austin? I'll give that word the question. Well, 
I just drove on UT's campus and I just drove past one. So my recency bias is going to lead me to think, well, gosh, there was one here on this short drive. So there's probably, I don't know, 20. I love this area of thinking, which is like our minds are, and this is stealing a title from Dan Ariely's book, our minds are actually predictably irrational. They're not randomly irrational, but we actually know enough to know that the brain makes the same mistakes on a repeated basis. Mm. So anyway, decision-making, pursuing risk, I think there are some tools that can let you back out a little bit, take some of the heat and oxygen out of the room and think about it a little bit more simply in a more straightforward way. So you're at the end of your Princeton days. What's Evan thinking? So you're going in a senior year. What are options on the table? What do you really want to do? What are people telling you to do? What's it like? Yeah, so this is 2005, and I have enough undergrad friends or friends recently out undergrad to think that this hasn't changed that much. But in that era, it is management consulting or investment banking are kind of the big paths if you are a little more openly not interested in only making money, you'd maybe consider law school because you like the constitution or something. (laughs) And uh, I remember I, like everyone else, fell into, okay, gosh, it seems like working at McKinsey is a great idea. And I go have the interviews and I was interested also in public policy, still in my like, do great things for America in the form of politics and policy and law. And I end up in this conversation with the managing director of the McKinsey DC office, which was like my dream, awesome place to work because it's consulting. So at least you make some money, but it's also policy, which was cool. And DC was cool. We're trying to think about the right fit. And he kind of became a little bit of a mentor. And he says, well, tell me this. If you had some free time on the weekend, if you take this job at McKinsey, do you think you would be reading the quarterly industry newspaper on the canned goods industry? Or would you be reading Politico or Hotline, you know, one of the, Mm -hmm. the insider politics reports? And I just sort of stopped and I was like kind of thinking it was a joke. And I was like, the canned goods quarterly, like, is that actually a thing? I was like, that sounds terrible. <laughs> so for me, it was very clear I would certainly be reading something about politics and policy. And in a sense, it was kind of a rhetorical question. Or once I answered the question, it was like, okay, your heart and passion would really not be in this thing. So consulting deal is just not going to be a fit. So I set out to you know get a job in Washington, D.C., which is – a great way to go make, I don't know, I think I was paid like $22,000 a year in that first job, which barely covers rent, I imagine. And I worked really hard to set up some interviews. I'd been in the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton, which is the policy school. And so I go down to Washington, D.C. I'd sort of set up some interviews and I got to Capitol Hill early. I was in Cannon House office building and I'm walking down the hall wasting a little bit of time because I was early for my next meeting and I see a nameplate of Frank Wolf who is a member of Congress from Virginia. And Frank, Congressman Wolf, had spoken at Princeton six months before. I didn't meet him there, but I went to the talk and was in the back of the room. And I just said, you know, I'm early. I'll just pop in and say hello. (laughs) So I go in and I say to the nice woman at the desk, I said, hey, I'm Evan. I heard Frank Wolf speak a while back. It was wonderful. Is there any chance I could just say hello to him today? Well, I later learned that that was her very first day in the office. And she didn't know that you don't send random people back to meet the member of Congress. You're about to get her fired. And so so she's like, um, yeah, he is here today, actually. You know, why don't you just go on back? And I was like, okay. You know, so here it's like, you know, one 21-year-old saying to the other 21-year-old, yeah, go back and talk to him. So I walk back there, walk into his office, and he's like, hello, uh, 
come on in, not knowing who I was. And I said, great to see you, you know, really enjoyed your talk. And he says, well, what brings you to town? I said, well, I'm interviewing some for some jobs. And he said, well, stay right here. I want you to talk to my chief of staff. So the chief of staff comes in and he says, we have this crazy situation. Our senior legislative aide who is just going to go on maternity leave. We are going to have a fellow come in, but that person fell through. Could you start next week? (laughs) And I was just like, am I on candid camera? I mean, it was this crazy, it was this crazy moment for me. And I think one theme for my life has been, um, I have a gregarious curiosity, Hmm. two parts to that, like on the gregarious front. I really love people. I love to be in a room and to meet new people. It's kind of my wife's greatest fear is being in a room of 100 people she doesn't know. When we moved to Manhattan, she said that I love Manhattan so much because it's 8 million people I haven't met yet. And so my (laughs) wife and I don't really share that. She has a lot of strengths that I don't have, but that's the gregarious part. And the curious part, I think, is a suspended disbelief. Which is just to say like, okay, here we are in this studio and I've noticed that it's actually really quiet. So actually when I speak, it's interesting because the sound kind of falls deaf on your ears. How would you gin up some curiosity about, well, what are the materials and the surfaces and isn't it neat that they put sound dampening stuff? Anyway, so it's like, tell me any topic and I can find a way to get interested in it. And I have had a few interesting breaks along the way of meeting interesting people, which came because I went into their office or just asked them a question and they're like, sure, kind of come on in. So that's the long winded story of the break into Washington, D.C. life and a pretty wild adventure on Capitol Hill. How long did you stay there? I was there about a little over two years and fell into some really interesting work around religious liberty and human rights. And it's interesting dynamic because The member of Congress I worked for was a Republican. He was the co-founder and co-chair of the Congressional Human Rights Caucus. Hmm. The co-chair of the caucus by structure was a Democrat. And at the time, it was Tom Lantos, who was the only member of Congress who had survived the Holocaust. Hmm. And he passed away several years ago and just a, a legend, obviously, in his own life story, but then his advocacy for human rights issues. So it was a really interesting time. It was a partisan time on basically every vote, but there was this set of strange bedfellows of Catholics and Jews and evangelicals and secular atheist human rights people Hmm. that all worked together in this really interesting way around some really interesting causes around sex trafficking or religious liberty or internally displaced people. So it was this wild education, not just on the issues, but I think more interestingly for me on the politicking around coalition building for what is unfortunately sort of a niche niche set of issues. Hmm. And then what prompts you to leave? I left there to go do a joint degree to study religion and law. I had kind of a sense of a little bit of diminishing marginal returns concept that each additional day got you a little bit less than the day before. I still could have learned a lot more. I don't mean to imply that I had mastered anything, but I think a lot of those jobs are are basically – barely paid internships and you go and you get a crash course in kind of a certain area. But that was a career track that was kind of like, okay, if you want to advance here, probably good to get an advanced degree. A lot of people get master's degrees or law degrees. And the particular area I'd worked in was on looking at political Islam as it manifests in other countries and the implications that has for human rights. And so the Islamic legal scholar of Congress, his name is Isam Saliba, sat me down and he said, you know, Evan, you should devote the rest of your life to helping figure out how the United States as a nation state should relate to Islam as a religion. 
And we were in this amazing, you know, the Library of Congress, the reading room, this crazy room. And I just remember this moment of like, oh, my God, this is so intense. Maybe I should do this. We're going down a rabbit trail of heading off to study religion and law and trying to become a lawyer and then had a summer of practicing law and realized that it is a great thing for other people to do. So you and I share summer clerkships that convinced us to never return recovering back lawyer to the yeah law. I, oh, I, I can't even say I'm recovering I, I you know I, I was never actually a lawyer I, I'm thankful for the work that people do but learned for me that that it was not a fit I find a lot of young people and I still fall into this trap but there was this idea that well because I like speaking and writing and America and policy I'm gonna go be a lawyer. The distinction that took me a while to figure out is the difference between the function of a job and the content of the job. Hmm. And I think a lot of people think about the content. So they think about joining a think tank or being a journalist or being a politician or a business person or whatever because they like the content. For me, I think my own level of satisfaction actually has a lot more to do with the function of the job. And by that, I mean very routine questions like, do you work alone? Are you on the telephone? Do you communicate orally? Do you have to travel and work with large groups of people? For me, it was this moment of realization, heads down 100 hours into a brief, footnote 400 something. And it was the function of being a lawyer in that particular kind of law. That was really isolating and just not a fit for the kinds of things that make me happy. And before that, I was just so naive. I didn't know what investment banking was. I didn't know what private equity or all these things that all these friends but of mine were doing. But it sounds so sexy though, right? Oh, man. McKinsey awesome. and Goldman. And Everyone's doing it. It's, you know, the recruiters are here and you get the little gym bag and the water bottle. And oh, yeah. But I had no idea what those things even were. Shoot, I probably barely know what any of them do now. So it's interesting, you know, on that, on that concept in, in teaching freshmen and singers were leaving and for so many of them law school is the default option and again like i think we both recognize and appreciate the work that attorneys do but when you start to unpack the why hmm. it comes back to content 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 well i was in debate and oh well i wrote a paper that i really enjoyed on ip law right but are you want to be a part of the 100 hour grind do you hmm. like Big firm, small firm, solo practice, you know, right? short-term deals, M&A, or you like the long-term kind of plays. So that function versus content, I feel like it changes. From a functional standpoint, maybe there are some core things that people believe in and that they enjoy that don't change. But I think reassessing that list mm. is probably important to do over time. Right. Well, the reality for a lot of law school students, out of my vintage, my wife is a lawyer, did graduate from law school. And in that vintage, the incoming class into SCADA in an extremely elite, fancy, big law firm that everyone would covet to get a job at, the numbers are roughly 180 first years hired from law schools to join. And then they're on, like I think, an eight-year partner track. And that cohort vintage, eight years later, something like six of those people make partner. Hmm. And Meanwhile, over those years, you may make what feels like a lot of money. You back out the effective hourly rate, and it's actually not that amazing. Even if you have a nice apartment in Manhattan, you never get to see it or you enjoy it when you rest from 1 to 5 in the morning. I'm now about five years out of law school, six years out, and watching a lot of friends of mine who went the big law route be really 
uncertain about what they want to do with their career. I mean, this weird, twisted way, the only thing worse than being a senior associate at a big law firm is being a partner because your responsibilities increase. You got to bring in deals. And so meanwhile, I have friends that absolutely love the law. There are people who are U.S. attorneys or DAs and hope to be judges, or there's people that are doing small town legal practice. There's some even big corporate lawyers that really like what they're doing. But I think generally it's kind of we're in this sad case of young people, especially coming out of college, aren't really sure what they want to do with their lives and the recruiting apparatus and the social norms that drive into traditional functions like high finance and law are of limited use for a lot of people. Mm. There's a guy who started, it was a first data scientist, Jeff Hammerbacher had a great line. He said, what does it mean that some of the smartest people in the world today spend all of their lives trying to optimize down to a thousandth of a percent improvement on clicking on ads? <laughs> so he built the data team at Facebook and was working on with the smartest people on these tiny, tiny, tiny little things. And he's now doing some amazing work around medical technology. And it's just fascinating to think, you know, if we had the best and the brightest and the smartest people from all kinds of disciplines tackle big problems that really mattered, gosh, I feel like we'd hmm. solve them a lot more quickly. It reminds me of your your mentor, Peter Till's quote about they gave us 140 car- how does it go it's it's like the, yeah 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 we, yeah he said so uh, we wanted flying cars and all they gave us was 140 characters <laughs> yeah that's sort of the motto of a founders fund yeah peter till's a fascinating person was actually on a very traditional track undergrad law school clerked on the federal circuit court and then he had an interesting failure moment where he made it through finals of interviews for a supreme court clerkship which is the crowning achievement of high potential lawyers and he didn't get the job and it was really the first time that he had failed, that he had been told no. And he called his buddy, Max, and explained the situation. And Max was working on this company that Peter didn't know a lot about. And Peter's like, well, I'll get involved with this thing. And he did. And that was PayPal. You pull down one road and turns out to be a cul-de-sac. And you then kind of like <laughs> turn around and back out. And you're like, was I supposed to do that? Or was that a wrong turn? And one of Peter's really interesting questions is basically – trying to understand the deceleration of innovation. And the stats are pretty damning. I think the Empire State Building was built in 18 months and World Trade Center is like 11 years. Mm -hmm. Similar analogy on the Golden Gate Bridge. We had things even in 50 years ago of extraordinary human feats. There are projections about, I think from Nixon, about our ability to end cancer the aspirations and hopes for NASA and additional trips to the moon. Looking back, the projection or the hope was not laughable. The execution and how lame an attempt we made at pulling off some of those things is really discouraging. Peter's hopeful about certain things, you know, certainly making investments in companies that are doing really cool things. But I think a general lament that he has is that we don't really have a generation or a country of people that are hopeful and indefatigably determined to build a better future. Hmm. Third quarter. Now take us into, this begins the walk into entrepreneurship. What does that journey look like? So it began very oddly. I guess this is a trend in my life. So I did not know who Peter Thiel was. I was at Yale in grad school and I get invited to a dinner with Peter. 
And I didn't know he was, but this friend of mine said, let's come to this dinner, really interesting person. And before we go, I'd like you to read some of these books by Rene Girard, a French literary critic I'd never even heard of before. And so I read these really dense books on Girard, which let's not go there, but they're really hard to understand. But Peter loves Girard. So I have this long dinner and wonderful, wide-ranging conversation, mostly me asking questions, trying to pretend like I know what Rene Girard even meant. It was a wonderful, interesting conversation. And Peter was putting together this company. He was involved in funding this company that was around organizing data around get out the vote, elections, and civic engagement. It was a for-profit company, and it was based in Washington, D.C. And Peter says, why don't you come work with that company for the summer? And so that was going to be my first kind of startup experience. And so I go down for the summer and show up. And I had sort of been sent in as like the investor's intern, which is kind of a weird dynamic with the team of, I don't know, 18 or 20 people that had been built. And so I was kind of the outsider that came in. So there's this dynamic of like, I wouldn't be invited to meetings. And I just, it wasn't feeling like it was going to go that well as we got into the summer. And so this is about... August 1st. And Peter calls on a Sunday night and the team and they're like, well, you know, as you know, things aren't going that well with the venture, hard to hire, hard to build product and whatever. So he says, you know, tomorrow, tomorrow, you'll just go ahead and fire everyone. You'll be made the CEO and help us clean up things there a little bit. Then we want to move the company to New York and build a new team. And then you can go back to grad school. And I'm sitting there just trying to imagine, you know, I was the intern that was not even invited to like the full team meetings and I was going to have to fight to even get the meeting with the CEO the next morning to let him know that he was fired. And pause. And so Peter says this very nonchalantly just as yeah, as a side note. This is like a kind of hey. like a, this isn't going that well. We need to do something drastic, but like, I'm sure you can figure it out. So that was a crazy call. The next few days were totally insane and trying to, navigate around non-competes and severance clauses. And it was a crash course, almost literally, in aligning investors and management. And so that was this fascinating run. And so moved to New York after we let a lot of people go and started building the team there and then had this uh, really interesting run of being brand new into this company, having a mandate of what the company was supposed to do, having some budget to do it, and having to go out and learn how to hire people and build product. And it was a, a very strange introduction to entrepreneurship. I had a few skills that were helpful. I do think that I just asked a lot of people a lot of really dumb questions mm -hmm. and that we had funding and that I knew a lot of people was a great way. I do think the internet is wonderful for providing blogs and video content to help you figure out things. I think a lot of the world's best knowledge, however, is still in people's minds. And so the best way to unlock that is to just build a big personal Rolodex of people that when you call them and say, hey, I'd love to ask you 20 minutes of questions about something. Will you help me? I found a ton of helpful information that way. So that was a, a first venture and a strange beginning to it for sure. <laughs> and what's next? This time I was going to go to business school at Harvard. Peter, as you know, is He's anti-college. I mean, certainly anti-business school. I probably have a little bit of risk aversion in me and saying, gosh, wouldn't I be more likely to be successful in business if I went to business school? I loved my time at Harvard, met extraordinary people. It was great for me because, you know, I'd studied 
Islamic theology and law and politics. And so all the coursework at HBS was actually really helpful for me because it was really new for me. If you're like a finance junkie, a lot of people for business school, it's kind of like a two-year vacation, but that was not my case. And so it was super valuable to go and kind of caught the entrepreneurial bug. I was Mm -hmm. thinking, do I want to start a company right out? I spent my summer at Facebook and was planning to go back to Facebook to work for Sheryl Sandberg. And I was really excited about being able to do that. And then the I knew I wanted to get back in the business of growing and building companies. I thought Harvard would be a segue. I thought maybe go to Facebook for a while. I'd meet a lot of people that then we could go do something. And then it was a friend of mine about a week before graduation. My wife and I have our plans. we got our movers. We're going to move to California. And my buddy is like, I've been working on some crazy ideas. And, and he didn't know what he was going to do after graduation. And so this is pretty last minute. So he's coming to me throwing ideas at me and I'm like, terrible idea. I, this is just terrible, terrible. I mean, they were really, we wrote a number of them down. And so looking back on them, it's really funny. And the last idea as it were, we were both students of Clayton Christensen thinking, which is coined the phrase disruptive innovation. And we had kind of taken this model of how do you think about disruptive innovation and apply it to bloated public or Fortune 500 services. And so through that lens, Will Davis, my great friend now, great friend then, says, I think we should create an alternative to the U.S. Postal Service. And we decided to commit to spend the rest of the summer prototyping this idea. And then my timing was such that my wife was finishing her clerkship. We reached this focal point at the middle of August. And it was like, okay, are we in or out? And we we had hustled over the summer, thought we could raise some money, had some crazy feedback from customers. And we were like, let's do this thing. What is your wife saying to you at this point? Yeah, she is she's kind of rethinking the whole marriage thing. <laughs> no, she um I've inflicted so much pain on her. She's taken five bar exams as a lawyer, state which any state. lawyers mm. know that that's just absolute misery. I think I owe her a bar trip around the world for a year <laughs> probably. I have not delivered that yet. So, I think for her we are still a little bit in like young professional grab bag of moving and we had been in a bunch of different cities and she really wanted to and I did too we wanted to find like a place to be and get situated we had one a young child at the time and we were like this is kind of crazy so she was less interested in like where we go but more interested like did we go somewhere and kind of stop the craziness (laughs) but she was really supportive of it she gave me for my birthday which is uh, right at the beginning of the summer a three thousand dollar check and it was listed as Outbox's first investment. Nice. And it was a cool, like, just kind of a permission, like, don't go take another job for the summer. If you need to travel, like, here's a little budget. So she was definitely there saying, like, go she's jump. She's your initial go, investor. Go jump over over the ledge. So, yeah, she's been hugely supportive through all that. And it's a, it's a hugely important thing. I mean, the marriage analogy, marriage is really interesting in kind of two ways with respect to entrepreneurship. One is spouses are intimately involved in the business, sometimes literally, but Mm. at the very least, just to bear the emotional toll for their own financial insecurity, but also dealing with your financial insecurity. So if you are starting a company, having your spouse be a part of that story, I think is really important. Then if you do have a co-founder, probably to whom you are not married, the marriage analogy is very much there again. We have a marriage coach. He's a professional coach, but he also does marriage counseling. And so my co-founder, to whom I'm not married, and I have a professional coach, but honestly, a lot of his coaching is basically like marriage coaching. Hmm. The analogies to marriage are so many, and I think one reflection just on the journey of entrepreneurship has really been 
it's a deeply human and emotional and interpersonal experience, mm-hmm. a lot more so than I thought. It's a lot more that than it is data, facts, timing, capital. Thank you for listening to A Tribe Called Yes. For more information, you can visit us at atribecalledyes.com and be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. And don't forget, keep saying yes. Yes.